Let us hear God's word. Romans 2, verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. The grass withers, the flower fades, for the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> Amen. Now, as we begin here today, um, growing up, I used to always hear my mom talk about having Sunday manners. And this was a term that she learned growing up, too. And the idea is when we go to church or if we get together with someone else or if they come over or whatever, put on your Sunday manners. Okay, mind your P's and Q's. You know, there are the statements that people make in this way. We need to rise to the occasion and and be our best self or something to this effect. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we should seek to rise to the occasion and be godly as we relate to other people. The problem with this, of course, is that if we put on our Sunday manners for Sunday, but we don't have those manners the rest of the week, now we're just a bunch of hypocrites. If we act really nice to our boss, or someone we're wanting to go out with, or with our extended family get-togethers, if we put on a show, as it were, but we live very differently the rest of the week or at other times, then we're falling into what Paul's talking about here, aren't we? We are not being consistent. We're being hypocrites. So with this briefly in mind, we have seen now in the last two weeks, these two uh, sermons, uh, these four verses where Paul is proclaiming that the Jews had received God's law and many privileges Because they are the people of God, that God had chosen them. Because they were God's people, they had his word. Because of being God's people, they know his will. They can discern between right and wrong because they have the scriptures where God tells us these things. And so therefore we have the privilege and the responsibility of teaching these truths here, yes, in our families, but also to unbelievers and new believers By resting in God, by resting in his word, we receive endless blessings. And it's all because of God's grace to us in Christ. And so we boast in these things. We rejoice in him and what he has done for us. And so these privileges are not only true for the Jew of the Old Covenant that Paul is addressing, but also now for the Christian who is looking back to what Christ has done. And we now are the true Jew, the new Israel. So we pause to focus on these truths because Paul's overall point here in this section is somewhat depressing, something that is hard for us to hear, especially verse after verse. 
Hey, we can handle Ephesians where he says it in three verses. <laughs> but now he spends uh, a whole chapter and portions of two others saying the same thing. And so I thought it'd be helpful for us to slow down a little bit, focus on these blessings to be encouraged in this way. Well, now we got to come back to Paul's point. And his point here is still very hard-hitting. Because God's standard of perfection is still in place, and that standard is perfect obedience, and because God's people have this standard in all of these privileges, one of the implications here is that we are held to a higher standard as the people of God. The Jews in the Old Covenant and now Christians are held to a standard of obedience that is clear. We have no excuses to say, well, we didn't know we should have done X, Y, or Z. The Gentile, the unbeliever, has the standard. It's written on their hearts. They can see things in what God has made. But it is less clear, and it is less complete. They are held to this standard, but can you say not quite as highly? Not quite as thoroughly, you could say. But for believers, we are. And so one of the implications that Paul does not develop here, but does address broadly here in this section, is this. When Peter says in 1 Peter 4, the judgment begins in the house of God, this is part of what he's talking about. It begins with us because we have God's word. We have this privilege, and so we need to live by it. We have no excuses whatsoever. And let me give you a couple examples here of what this means. Think of bringing your child here to church. And we could say, well, Des stepped out with, with the little one here at the moment. But we're going to hold her to a standard that she must worship God, right? We all have that standard. But we're going to hold her differently to that standard than, say, Matthew or ourselves. Because, right, she doesn't understand all these things yet. She knows deep down she should worship God. Already she knows that. It's written on our heart. She's hearing some of these things already from me, from her parents, from others. But we hold them to a different standard. We hold Noah to a different standard of note-taking during the sermon than we do Matthew or Emma. But as they grow, they're held to a higher standard. So back to the point here, let me use another example. Hamas will be held to the standard that God has placed upon everyone. They know that murdering babies and cutting off their heads, raping women, kidnapping people, hating their neighbor, they know all this is wrong, and they will be held by that standard that God has given. But the Jews are going to be held to a higher standard because they have the Old Testament. They know more clearly what God requires in relations with others than the people of Hamas who don't have God's word and just have the Quran. Or to put it another way, we who say we are Christians, hey, we know even more than the Jew because we have the New Testament. We have Christ coming and all these things that we believe in. But if we are going 
to release criminals because of social justice and try to prove it from the scriptures that we should do this, or that if we're going to stand with women's rights for abortion or transgender rights or open borders or any of these things, right, we're going to be held to a higher standard because we know better. The Bible's very clear about these matters. And so all are held to the same standard. But because of the privileges that we have, we are held at to that standard, even more so, you could say. It's higher in a sense. And so, Paul now lets us have it, you might say, in these next verses. Paul develops his point, calling on the professing believer to live without hypocrisy. Here's where verse 13 ties in more clearly. Or maybe we could put it this way. Remember verse 13, he said, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Well, in verses 17 to 20, he talked about the hearers of the law, all these privileges that we have. Now he's saying, but you got to do it. You can't just know the truth. You must live by it. And so he's expanding on this idea now. Well, let's look here then what he says. In verse 21, we begin here with four questions, or possibly a fifth, and we'll talk about that uh, here in a moment. But the first one, then, in verse 21 is this. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? All right, well, similar to what we saw last time in verses 19 to 20, Paul says four things about teaching, but he's got one main point. Well, similarly here, we have these four, possibly five questions, and they're all basically saying the same thing. And so we begin with this first one. And notice how he ties it with what we talked about last time. <coughs> Excuse me. And that is the privilege of teaching. We have the scriptures. We know the truth. We are to teach. That, that's a wonderful thing. But are we listening to our own teaching? Are we practicing what we are preaching? Now Paul's question here is assuming a no for an answer. Right? You who teach another, do you teach yourself? No, you're not. That's the assumption that he is making. That's how he wants us to understand this question. <clears throat> He's saying, Jews, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're not practicing what you are teaching to others. Now, of course, our children are very good at, at seeing this in, a, in us, right? And sometimes they tell us, right, to our face. <laughs> Okay, mom, dad, why are you doing this? You know, this doesn't make any sense. And they, they point out our hypocrisy. But sometimes they keep it to themselves, and especially if our hypocrisy is quite regular, it can then lead to rebellion, to the rejecting of the faith, or at least parts of it. Unbelievers, of course, are very quick to point out the hypocrisy of those who say they are Christians. Again, this is what Paul is pointing out to us. We're not living by the standard we say we believe in and that we're trying to uphold. Let's turn here uh, a moment to Psalm 50. <coughs> Psalm 50. <coughs> we have here this Psalm of Asaph. And... Uh, <coughs> um, 
as always, there's a lot that we could point out here from uh, the broader context. But let me focus our attention on verses 16 and following. Note what he says. To the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? In other words, what right have you to be a teacher of the truth? Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You have given your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now you notice some of the words that are here. Maybe this is what Paul is following when he gives some of the more specific questions, as we'll see. But uh, you see about adultery and thievery and so forth here. Some of this language we'll see again in in chapter 3, too. But you see the point. The point is, Asaph here, God through Asaph, is condemning God's people who are teaching God's word but not living by it. And just because God hasn't punished them yet doesn't mean God's happy with them. Eventually he will. And so, back to Paul's point here, um, as we have seen since chapter 1, verse 18, none of us are perfect. None of us keep God's law the way God intends it to be done. Even with all the privileges that we have as God's people, we still are imperfect. We still fall short of God's standard. Okay? Paul is not here addressing the unbeliever. We could maybe say that is his only point in chapter 1. We could even maybe say that in verses 1 to 16. Well, we certainly can't say that here. He is speaking to us. And he's condemning us. So the second question that he mentions here then in verse 21 You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Here the assumed answer is, yes, you do. Now, it may not be that we go to the bank and we hold them up with a gun and take money. It may be that we never go to Walmart and shove things in our coat pocket and not pay for it. It may be that we don't go over to our neighbors and take something out of their shed without telling them or giving it back. We may not do those things, but there are other ways that we steal. Just a few examples here. When we go to work, are we stealing from our employer by not giving our best? By being lazy? By taking extended breaks? Or maybe taking extra supplies, not just for your desk at work, but for your desk at home too? Or to turn it around, for those who are the employers, are you paying a fair wage to your employees, or are you holding back? Are you paying them on time? Or are you wanting open borders to drive down wages so you don't have to pay your employees so much? All that is a form of stealing. How many times have we borrowed from someone and forgotten to return it? If you support socialism and legalize theft, that is stealing. 
or if we think of it in a spiritual way, if we come here to church and we do not pay attention when it's prayer time, if we fall asleep during the sermon, when we sing, if you're not really thinking about your singing, isn't this a form of stealing from God's honor and glory? Again, Paul's point here is saying, you know what is right. You know what to do. You know what the right answer is. You teach people these things. But are you living according to the very things that you're teaching? And he's saying, no, you're not. You're inconsistent. You are not perfect. So the next example he gives is now in verse 22. You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Again, the assumed answer here is yes, you are. You are breaking the seventh commandment. We go from the eighth commandment and stealing now here to the seventh one. And obviously, we are to be pure before marriage. We are to be faithful after marriage. We know what it should be. And many of us here have kept this command, outwardly speaking. But none of us have kept it perfectly. Not when we include our thoughts And so lusting is the breaking of the seventh commandment, obviously pornography. Um, Emotional affairs, that too is breaking the seventh commandment. Uh, Add to all the things going on with gender stuff in our culture, with homosexuality and transgender stuff and gender fluidity, all that's breaking the seventh commandment too. And if we, even as Christians, say that those things are right, then just being a bunch of hypocrites the fourth question he gives now the rest of verse 22 you who abhor idols do you rob temples now clearly um, paul is combining the eighth commandment robbing stealing with the second commandment and that has to do with idols right and making images and so on but what he specifically means by robbing temples is is a bit more unclear What we can say is this, by the first century, by the time of Paul, Israel was not worshiping idols like they used to do. In fact, they're exiled to Babylon, and after they came back, they didn't worship idols in the same way. They didn't have Baal or Asherah or Moloch or any of these other idols that they worshiped. And so they did abhor idols. What Paul is saying here is true. They were teaching this. They were saying this. They were right to say this. But they were then robbing temples. Now, what does that mean? Well, some have suggested, uh, we have some information that in 19 AD, and so you're talking almost 40 years before, that there were Jews in Rome who took money that was donated to the Jerusalem temple. Maybe that's what Paul is referring to here. Temples in that day, and even in other times of history, would be considered like a bank. And people would store valuables there and so forth because the gods, or God himself, would protect it, right? Keep it safe. But Jews would say that if you took something from a pagan temple, that was okay. You could rob the temple. Maybe this is what Paul has in mind. I'm not sure we can say definitively. But what is clear is, again, this inconsistency. 
you say you're going to worship God. Okay, you're going to worship God the way God tells us to worship him in the second commandment. But are you going to do something different? So as we take that broader principle, some have said that maybe the best way for us to apply this uh, is not only in our worship, like I said here a moment ago, but specifically in our worship with regard to tithing. And maybe Paul has this in mind specifically, maybe not, maybe the temple tax, we can't say for sure, but certainly we can apply it in this way, right? If we say that we should worship the way God tells us to worship, which is ultimately what the second commandment is telling us, if we do not worship in regard to money, which seems to be his focus here, then we're robbing from God. If we give 3% of our income and not 10%, then we're robbing from God. Malachi says this in chapter 3, right? Maybe we can apply this to embezzling from the church or a Christian organization. Um, again, we're, we're not totally sure what Paul means specifically. But we certainly can make the application, can't we? Okay. Whether Paul means something very specific, like in, in AD 19, or something more general, even about uh, uh, a, a sacrilegious kind of activity that could apply to anything, whatever it is, he is again assuming a yes answer here. You are robbing temples. You're robbing from God. You're robbing and you're not worshiping the way you say that we should worship. Now, many commentators indicate that Paul's three specific questions here about uh, the robbing temples, about adultery, and about stealing, he mentions those three things because those were problems in Rome. And that's probably the case. We can apply these specific things to ourselves, but we certainly can expand it in other things too, right? Okay, he mentions the Eighth Commandment, Seventh Commandment, Second Commandment. Well, what about the others? Okay. We say, we know we should honor our parents. Are you doing it? We know that we shouldn't covet. Are you coveting? You know, we can apply it in other ways. And again, as I mentioned earlier in Psalm 50, maybe Paul had Psalm 50 in mind. That's why he mentioned some of the things that he does. But whatever the case... The point is the same. Paul is telling us, we're a bunch of hypocrites. We are not perfect. So let's look at verse 23. You who make your boasts in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Now that's how the New King James does it. If you have another translation, it may give it as a statement, not a question. Hey, you who make your boast in the law are dishonoring God through baking the law, or something like that. There is some question here. With the earlier questions, Paul makes it abundantly clear that he's asking a question. We don't have that specific thing in the Greek text to tell us, yes, he's definitely wanting a question here. Um, so, hence the debate. But either way you go with it, don't you get to the same conclusion? Whether you're doing it more... Um, can you say softly through a question or more directly through a statement? His point is the same. You make your boast in the law. You have the law. You have God's standard as God's people. But you dishonor God when you break it. And 
we all do. Okay. We all do. The Jews, of course, boasted by having the Old Testament. Okay, back to verse 13, verses 17 to 20. But Paul says, but you dishonor God every time you sin. Our disobedience undermines all that we say about truth, about God, about Jesus, about loving others, and, and so on and so forth. You know, and, and, and we see this just in everyday ways too, right? If a lawyer or judge is found to be corrupt, then every case they worked on is suspect now, right? It's the same basic idea. If we say, yep, all this is true and right, and then over here we're living like a bunch of heathens, and even if it isn't that extreme, we're being a hypocrite and we undermine everything. Okay? We undermine and we dishonor God most of all let's turn here a moment then to or look now I should say to verse 24 <clears throat> verse 24 Paul now puts a rubber stamp if you will on everything he has just said now by quoting from the Old Testament for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written now there are two passages that Paul probably has in mind here, and actually the, the Greek and the Hebrew are closer than it may seem in the New King James anyway. Um, so there is some debate on which one he's quoting from, but I'm inclined to think that he's quoting from Isaiah 52. So let's turn there first anyway, and then we'll look at the other one. In Isaiah 52, <clears throat> which of course immediately precedes the suffering servant passage that we're very familiar with. Well, let me read a portion here. Um, again, there's much more that could be said, but in verse 4 of Isaiah 52 says this, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, let me pause and say this. This is not referring to Jacob and the family going down to Egypt a thousand plus years before Isaiah says these things. That's not the context. We're not talking about the plagues in the Red Sea. No, we're talking about something that was happening in Isaiah's day. The Assyrians came against Israel. Right? God was judging his people by bringing the Assyrians. And they, of course, took the northern kingdom into exile. But Israel, instead of trusting in God, were trusting in the Egyptians to help them. But even the Assyrians took over Egypt, this verse is saying. So then verse 5. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. All right, there's a lot going on in here. Well, let me just pull out the, that last part that uh, Paul uh, seems to be quoting from. And uh, the point is simply this. Because of Israel's sin, they are oppressed. Right? The Assyrians and other uh, enemies come against them. And so their sin has led to this problem. But now, because of their sin, the Gentiles are saying, well, Yahweh must not be the true God. If Yahweh can't protect his people and we can dominate them and take them over, then Yahweh must be nothing. And so Yahweh's name is blasphemed by the Gentiles 
because of Israel's sin. That's the point here. Now let me read a little bit more. Verse 6, Therefore my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, and so forth. Right? We know that verse. Paul's going to quote it in Romans 10. Do you see the flow of thought here? Israel's sin leads to judgment. Israel's sin also leads to blaspheming God. But God's going to do something good anyway. Let's turn now to Ezekiel chapter 36. This passage is saying the same thing. It's just a bit clearer for us to follow. So Isaiah 36, beginning in verse 16, note these words. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land, and for their idols with which they had defiled it. Now, the shed blood here is oppressing the poor ideas, maybe literal blood, maybe not, and their idolatry. Okay, so here's Israel's sin. Now verse 19, So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name, when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. Did you catch that? He's not saying Israel went to Babylon and was speaking badly about Yahweh. No, Israel was taken to Babylon, and the Babylonians are saying Yahweh must be nothing. Because look what happened to his people. Verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Now that word profane, your translation may have a different word. Right? Blasphemy, right? Same, same word. And this is why some people think maybe Paul's quoting here. Let me continue reading verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you, from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds, which were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight, 
for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this. Assumption, right? For my name's sake, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded in your own ways, O house of Israel. Now, I read all of that because Paul is going to say all of these things in the book of Romans. The hope is God is concerned about his name, and that's why he saves us in spite of ourselves. But Paul's not to that point yet in Romans 2. His point is, verse 31, remember your evil ways and your deeds. Loathe yourselves in your own sight for your, own, your iniquities and abominations. And then the end of verse 32, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. That's the point he is making right now in Romans 2. There's more here, but that's the emphasis. The hope is completely undeserved. But the problem is we tend to think that we do deserve it. That's what Israel was thinking. Hey, we're somehow better than. We tend to fall prey to that too. We have all these privileges. There must be something extra special about me. And Paul says, no, not at all. It's by God's grace only. And so when we sin, this is not unusual, you might say. Because this is still part of who we are as sinners. We are not yet glorified. But the point that Paul is emphasizing here is that when we sin, we are bringing reproach on God. We are bringing reproach on his church and on truth. And so when unbelievers say, and maybe you've even heard them say, look, if Christians act like that, why should I believe in Jesus? If Christians are going to act that way with the people they say they love, then why in the world should I go to church? And so when we profess faith in Christ but disobey him, it causes unbelievers to reject God. It can cause a Catholic to reject Protestant teaching or an Arminian to reject Reformed teaching or the liberals to reject the conservative teachings of the scriptures. So let's turn a moment to Matthew chapter 23. And let me summarize this here for us. But Jesus here is speaking to the religious leaders and saying the same things as Paul. And there are all these woes that he gives. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them, you might say, some names, but appropriately so. And note especially verses 16 and following. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And then he gives a couple more other examples here. Basically, what the the religious leaders were doing was, okay, here's God's word. We're supposed to keep our vows, keep our promises. That's good. But here are ways you can cross your fingers behind your back. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous. You're being a hypocrite. I could point out others here, but you get the idea. But notice what Paul is doing. Jesus is condemning the religious leaders. 
Paul's condemning all of us because we all do this. The Jews of the Old Covenant, the Christians of today, all of us sin in thought, word, and deed. All of us do what God forbids. All of us don't do what he requires. All of us consciously sin. All of us unknowingly sin. And so, yes, we deserve judgment. We don't keep the standard, but also it dishonors God. And so all Jews, all Christians are liable for judgment. The privileges we have do not mean we don't deserve it. We do deserve judgment because we've all broken his standard. Possessing the truth is not enough. Being part of the church is not enough. Being baptized or circumcised, as he's going to go on to say, that's not enough to avoid judgment. Doing all kinds of religious things is not enough. All of us fall short of God's standard. All of us deserve punishment. The only way to honor God is to obey him perfectly. But none of us do. And he will not give up in making this point. I've been saying this for weeks now, right? But Paul doesn't want us to wiggle out in any way whatsoever from this conclusion. We must come to the point of having no hope in ourselves. Even those of us who say we believe in Jesus, there is no hope in and of ourselves, none whatsoever. Not my faith, not my choice, not my deeds, nothing. Our own only hope is God. And so again, Paul wants us to be ashamed and confounded because if we actually come to that point, we will then turn to God and away from ourselves. Paul is not telling us here, do a better job and don't be so hypocritical. That's not his point. He'll say some of those things in chapter 12. His point here is, you can't do anything other than be a hypocrite. And so may that humble you and turn you to the Lord. All right, well, we will turn to this topic of circumcision then next time. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for what you teach us. We thank you, Lord, that you do not just pat us on the back and say how wonderful we are. But you directly, though in many ways gently, point out, what is true about us, how wretched we are. Lord, we again ask that you would work in each one of us here, that we would not hold on to anything in ourselves, not anything that we have done, not anything that we have not done, somehow thinking that's going to make us pleasing in your sight. Instead, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see, as we sung earlier, that we're just a bunch of worms. We are wretched. We're a bunch of hypocrites. Not so that we can wallow in our sin, but so that we would turn to you in faith and repentance. And so we pray, Lord, as we saw earlier in Sunday school, that we would 
understand carefully this call to repentance and the need for it so that we will turn to you. We pray this for your honor and glory, the exaltation of your name, and for even for our good. And so we pray all these things then in Christ's name. Amen.